Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in Season 10. Our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my god, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. American Psycho is over. This confession has meant nothing. New card. What do you think? Whoa. 
Very nice. Patrick, you're so sweet. Jean? Yes, Patrick? Would you like to accompany me to dinner? Sabrina, why don't you dance a little? Christy, get down on your knees. We're not through yet. That's a wonderful suit. You look so soft. I don't think I can control myself. If you stay, something bad will happen. I feel lethal, on the verge of frenzy. I think my mask of sanity is about to slip. Do you have any witnesses or fingerprints? Actually, yes. Hmm. You're inhuman. I know my uh, behavior can be erratic sometimes. Hey, Paul! So, what do you do? I'm into, uh, well, murders and executions mostly. I have all the characteristics of a human being, but not a single clear, identifiable emotion. I simply am not there. I, uh, <laughs> I just had <laughs> to kill a lot of people! All right, Andy, this is the second in our Mary Heron series. Yes. American Psycho. Uh, when's the last time you watched it? I saw this when it came out in theaters. And then I bought the disc of it because, you know, some this is one of those movies that uh, they end up selling for super, super cheap around Halloween periodically. <laughs> yes, and I, they I do. Found, <laughs> I found it really cheap. And I'm like, oh, cool. I'll have this. <sighs> and then I have not been able to get myself uh, to watch it again because I know what I'm getting into. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to be in the right space for that and make sure that, you know, my my kids aren't running around the house. <laughs> when I that, that it turns out is the harder thing. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So in the end, I realized I haven't actually watched this since seeing the theaters. So this is the first time <gasps> Andy, since then. So this treat. is my second, my second viewing of it. Yeah. What a gift for you. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it really is. Yeah. So, okay. So tell me, what'd you think? Oh, I, I think that this is a genius piece of filmmaking. I think that this, um, I've never read the book, but assuming, I, I know you have, and I'm sure you can talk to us about that. Uh, assuming that the book is pretty much the same thing, it's just kind of uh, the literary form. Um, I, I think it just looks at this idea of uh, just kind of American greed and American obsessions and, and narcissism and everything. And it captures it in a really frightening way that is just mesmerizing. And what I think makes the film work the way it does is that it's so funny. And I think if there wasn't that humor, I think that this would be a really hard movie to sit through. It would be like watching a Serbian film or something like that. It's just like, it's just like dark and disturbing and, and awful. <laughs> In this Actually, particular ironically, case. <laughs> the Serbian adaptation of American Psycho is a comedy. It's like a straight comedy. It's very right, goofy. Yeah. Anyway. So, so I, I just think it's, it's such a smart film. And I think Patrick Bateman is uh, just like such a frighteningly portrayed character. 
um, that Christian Bale does an amazing job with. It's just, I don't know. I, I was really taken by how strong the film was watching it again. So uh, yeah. it's, it's just really great to rewatch it. Well, the, you you mentioned the book, and I I teased my experience with the book uh, last time when we were talking about um, I shot Andy Warhol. It it is a it's a very difficult book to to read. It's you know four hundred pages of incredibly um, well. Uh, first, it's incredibly dense with the the haute couture stuff. Right, we get just a little treat of it when he's like giving his doing his daily ablutions right he's putting on his mask and he's you know doing his crunches and all that um his like the way they describe that stuff the way brett Eastells describes that stuff in, in such exhausting detail imagine that scene but spread chapters long throughout the 400 page experience with him uh it is extraordinary the detail through which he goes to describing what everybody in every scene is wearing and what those things represent. I will say the movie is very much aligned with the book. Every like stitch of dialogue uh, in the movie pretty much comes from the book. It comes in in it just sort of this extraordinarily rearranged uh, you know uh, machine, uh, but it is the same stuff uh, where the book is is uh, excessive is in the violence the the vileness toward women the vileness toward you know those he truly sort of disrespects um the way he is vile the kinds of things he does you know the chapter where he kills the homeless man and the dog is it's a chapter and it's just called Tuesday and he does some awful things to this guy and it is extraordinarily detailed um you know the the prostitute scene that I mean, the, the sex scenes in the book, they just they go on for days. Uh, and so it's a it is a tough slog. It's the hardest thing I've ever read. The book is or the movie is a, a vastly sanitized version of it. Mm. And and we should say in terms of the book, it's it's still banned in a lot of places. You can't get it in libraries. Um and um, it's, you know, I mean, you can you can buy it on Amazon, but in a lot of countries, it's hard to find yeah. uh, this book. In some countries, you can only get it shrink wrapped. You can't like look at it on the shelf. It wasn't published in hardback until the, the late 2000s. Um, so it's it's been around a while. Brett Easton Alice, and this is a thing I, I'd like to hear your comments on. You, you know, he's he and uh, a lot of the people involved in the movie, they all look at this property and like this is some something for somebody who appreciates satire. Uh, where do you stand on that? Because so much of the critique of that position is, uh, you know, People who say that are hiding violence and uh, this sort of despicableness of human nature behind the veil of satire. This film is just so um, pointed, I think, at the way that it's looking at these things that it's hard to uh, not take it as satire. And I, I think that I, I saw something about how like the, the book, like some of the humor in his book, like that darkly satiric view of some of these situations that he wrote as funny weren't necessarily interpreted as funny, just like really horrifying and dark. And the film certainly captures that humor. And I think that's one of the few things that Brett Easton Ellis enjoyed about the way the film unfolded and, and actually captured parts of the book that he liked. It's a, it's a hard thing to do. And, and I, I don't know. I think you can capture a lot of that in satire 
And I think that it, it I, I don't know, I guess I'd say I think that it's a very tricky thing to do in a story uh, with such dark things happening because you can just lose lose track of the fact that there is satire going on when you're watching some of the stuff that is so dark and so violent throughout, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. And and it's one of those properties where especially the book, it's so long uh in in terms and and so exhausting. It it is the the story itself is so exhausting that if you miss a beat, it's really easy to miss what's going on in yeah. later scenes. And it can allow that sort of misinterpretation. Like it's one of those that asks a lot of you to in terms of paying attention. And I think the movie, I think Mary Herron's uh, interpretation of it and uh, Genevieve Turner's uh, interpretation of it, um, uh, it asks a lot of you too to in, in watching the movie uh, and just sort of taking in the experience um, and not to be distracted by some of the images that you see on screen. Um, and it is for people who appreciate satire and really dark satire. That is, that's what, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Cause I mean, satire by nature has kind of a, a, a humorous, like a line running through it, right? Yeah. It's a, it's social criticism in a way that's, there's a funny element uh, to kind of point out that what it's criticizing about society and everything. And I think that when you're dealing with murder (laughs) and things like that, I mean, it's very easy to forget that there's supposed to be a a level of comedy with it. And I think that's the thing with this particular story that is, um, makes it so interesting because it really is writing a really dark and dangerous line. Well, and it's a it's a real sort of bastion of transgressive fiction, right? I mean, this whole idea that you're writing things that are so vile, uh, you're writing them often in in a way to exercise the demons, the very demons that you're talking about, right? You're you're saying the things that people are afraid to say and hear, and you're doing it as a way of catharsis. And I think that is a lot of the message of this movie. It's catharsis by way of examining capitalism, examining, you know, business, examining uh, greed, examining capitalism. Did I say that already? It's doing that twice even. Uh, And and so it's, it's taking on many of the same themes. Themes that we uh, looked at in our Oliver Stone series, certainly in Heron's first film, uh, I'm the uh, uh, I shot Andy Warhol. Like these are things we keep coming up again through a different lens. So I, I think it is an incredibly powerful indictment of all of those things. And also, you have to get out of the way of the murdering. Yeah. So much murdering. There's a lot of murder. I, I, I mean, you just brought up Oliver Stone, and I can't help but point out Wall Street as a really kind of a direct line, I think, between uh, Oliver Stone's film and this film, that mm-hmm. whole connection to Wall Street. And we saw that in in uh, Charlie Sheen's character, just kind of this performance of like, there's never enough. Like, you're always wanting more. You always want to get that next thing because you, it, you can never have enough. And that certainly is the life that Patrick Bateman and his cronies all live, right? It's like they always like his whole thing is always like having to have more than whatever the next guy is, whether it's a better apartment because he's always comparing himself with a better apartment, better body, um, you know, the tanning bed comparison that they had. The business cards, which is just, you know, such a fascinating thing that people fawn over in that particular 
scene and like the suits, the, I mean, just everything, even the women, it, it's just always about getting more and one upping everybody else. And I thought that was such an interesting comparison to Wall Street and reading up on this film and knowing that, uh, you know, uh, Edward Pressman, who is, uh, Oliver Stone's producer, he had actually got the film rights to this. Uh, initially, I think it was going to be Johnny Depp and then David Cronenberg. And then it shifted to Leonardo DiCaprio and Oliver Stone as the director of this. Um, and then it, then when Leonardo DiCaprio left to go do the beach, that's when Mary Heron and, uh, and Christian Bale came on board. And uh, I just I think that <laughs> I, I didn't realize that, but having that connection to Oliver Stone, especially having just gone through that first 10 uh, or the, all of the 80s with him and seeing how he was developing his career, this totally would have fit the type of story that he was interested in telling. And so it's interesting that he ended up leaving, but I'm thrilled that uh, that Mary Heron ended up taking it on. I thought uh, it was a it was a great follow-up to I Shot Andy Warhol. It's going to seem weird that I say this, but I think uh, Mary Heron comes at this particular property with a greater sense of subtlety than uh, uh, <laughs> Stone. And, and in fact, it was rumored that Stone's script uh, actually removed the satire and really focused on on a lot of that dark darkness um, and, and leveled up the darkness in the book. Uh, and um, so probably I, I think things worked out. This, is, this likely shouldn't have been an Oliver Stone movie ever, yeah. uh, and and I think we ended up in the right place um, with it. Can I can I just ask which version you watched? I watched the uh, the uncut version. Okay. We watched it. This was my first time with the uncut version. There are very few things that are different, mostly the pornographic <laughs> stuff. I think it's 18 seconds, yeah, of, of additional material. But I have plus to say— Plus a line, it, plus one, it, one, yes. one notably different line. Yeah, <laughs> Which, yeah, for the kids, let's just say. <laughs> um, it, it's extraordinary. Uh, it, it looks great. It's been treated very well. This uncut version was uh, came out with the, um, the 4K— release uh, a few years ago and um, or the Blu-ray release a few years ago. And I thought it looked great. Yeah. And I, I don't know if the uncut version actually played anywhere. Did you find that or was this because I, I know she purposefully had to cut this uh, yeah. for the U.S. audiences. I'm not sure if it released this way overseas or not. Right. No. Um, OK. So unreliable narrator, my old friend. Welcome back. Let's talk about Patrick Bateman. What do you think of this guy? My understanding is the book makes it feel like the narrator is unreliable from the beginning. The way that the movie plays out is is we feel like he's a reliable nar narrator, just a very disturbed one, through most of the film until we all of a sudden start catching a few things toward the end, really kind of during the, down toward the climax, when all of a sudden things don't seem like they're lining up. And all of a sudden we're like, oh, wait a minute. Has all of this been a lie? Like, where where is the truth now? And and that's what I'm curious between the book and this uh, versus just like what I'm interpreting from the book. Because like after I get to that end, I'm like, okay, so did none of this happen? Are there things that happened? Did he kill like the the bum in the alley? Did he beat up those two prostitutes that were at, in his place, um, but he didn't kill them? Like, where's the line? And so I'm wondering, like, did nothing happen or did a few things happen or did some of this happen? Like, I, I'm really curious now. Well, I, uh, I'll say disappointingly, I don't know. 
Uh, <laughs> well, that's uh, what I thought you would say, actually. <laughs> more, more thoroughly. Um, a, a point on the book. Uh, there are a couple of, of sort of structural things going on in the book that I think are, are fascinating with regard to that concept. And I would say the book uh, largely, to my read of it, holds a lot of the sort of psychopathy back like i i really feel like it's it plays those cards closer to its chest until you get up to the end there is this whole thing with his father and you realize that there are these issues that he has with his father and his senile mother and all of that was obviously excised from the movie and that is really the the root in the book of where we end up at the end and in fact the whole book is told in first person until the end where it changes to third person narrative mm. and so you you are inside his head until you're not, and you're actually watching that final climax uh, happen outside of him. It, it's it's a fascinating way to kind of twist your brain around who is it that you're really watching here. I think you can arguably make a case either way. Um, did this happen? Did it not? I tend to believe personally that it did not. And it's a regular bloom and onion of why. Um, but on this view of it, uh, and and in my recent views, th- the clues start very early in the movie. In fact, the, his first conversation with a bartender is one of those yeah, notorious true. missed lines of dialogue. And it's the first scene in the movie. It's like the movie is telling you this is – he's not anchored in reality. And yeah, it's true. just going to get worse over the course of, of the film. Um, so so that's that's my take on it. And, and when it gets all the way up to the end, it was only this viewing. I've seen this movie dozens of times. It was only this viewing that it finally uh, sort of sunk in when he's talking to his attorney. And the attorney keeps calling him Davis. And he says, I'm not Davis. I'm Bateman. Yeah. Right, right. And the attorney, we assume as external to Bateman, is a rational guy. And does not believe he's talking to Bateman. Could it be that he's actually Davis and Bateman yeah. is this other personality that he has somewhere? Like those those elements make this, I think, more fun. And I'm usually not one for these kinds of movies with an uncertain resolution. But this one, I think, is hysterically fun. So what do you think um, uh, about it? Yeah, and, and uh, you're right. I'm glad you brought up those those little moments that we have of him speaking to somebody, which is clearly in his head, like the bartender mm-hmm. early on. Because yes, clearly there are those moments where we're, we're in his head. It's not necessarily unreliable narrator, but it is the type of thing that we see in movies. Uh, you know, it happens quite a bit where somebody, you see them do something or say something and then you cut to reality and realize, oh, that was just in their head. Like that's that's a pretty common movie technique to kind of give us a yeah. sense of like what what are they wishing they could do at this particular moment. I really like the way that they have those moments throughout. And you're right; those are good uh, signposts saying, you know what, you can't necessarily always trust what you're going to be seeing or hearing throughout this film. And so, to that end, I do think that there are a lot of moments that we're getting in the film that likely never happened. It's just something that. Patrick Bateman or Davis, we may just say, uh, likely was wishing that he could do like he probably wished he could have killed that bum and his dog. And and maybe he did go and actually talk to him and like have this little, you know, verbal confrontation with this guy about, you know, you're you're why don't you get a job? You're you're nothing, you know but didn't necessarily go through with it and actually kill him. But we'll never know. And that's what's so interesting about the character and the way that he's written is like, maybe he is doing things, maybe he's not doing these things. He certainly, 
the way that the film portrays the ending, we start getting a sense that he's not even sure what he's doing because he goes into that apartment thinking it's full of bodies only to find a realtor there showing the place. It's empty. It's being painted. It's just a vacant space that he likely had toured at some point, but in his mind was thinking that this was like his kill zone where all of his bodies and everything was. And and so that right there says, okay, he obviously didn't kill any of those people, even if he wished he did. This was just something in his head saying, I have this, this thing hiding in me and I want to, I'm creating these, imagined scenarios where I'm killing these people and I'm killing these women and, and all of this horrific stuff. Like, I don't know. I, I feel like that's something that's, that's portrayed. It's not super clear, but I feel like by the time we get to the end, he's starting to catch on that. I don't know where my reality begins and ends anymore. But Andy, dear Andy, Pete says, leading the witness, <laughs> what do you make of the real estate agent and her response to her sketchy response to Bateman. I don't think it's sketchy. I think that he seems like a little bit of a creeper, don't you? Like the way that he comes in and is like acting like he's walking and he's staring at the closet, being all creepy. He's looking for a particular person and stuff like that. There's something about him that makes me think he's not right. And, you know, I there are certain professions where you're you're with strangers by yourself in places where, you know, things could potentially happen. And if somebody's ask, acting creepy and you're a real estate agent in this empty space, I think that she's just, I don't know, the way I read it is she's just by nature reading, there's something off with this guy, you need to leave yeah. and just trying to keep herself safe. That's the way I interpreted it. I didn't think that it was like this had actually been a crime scene. They were cleaning it all out and she thought he was the, maybe the one who had left it that way. Yeah, well, and that's um, uh, I, that, that's actually held up as kind of case number one that he actually did do it all, that it was real, that somehow she was able to recognize him as someone who, you know, why was he looking in the closet? What was he looking at? Like that he was he was a guy that was sketchy enough that that maybe that cements the perspective that he was he's he's real. Um, I, I, I'm with you. I mean, my read on it is that she and, and we have precedent because a lot of this movie is even the non explicitly violent pieces are executing relationships with women that are horrible. Uh, the way he talks to them, the way he walks behind them, stands next to them in, in a, on a dark street corner alone like he exudes the non-example of just living as a large man in a world with women who are uncertain about motivations and this movie just takes it to the next level so he is now a large man at the end of this movie in this apartment unknown she it, she has every right to consider him as a sketchy individual regardless of what we have seen over the last hour and 30 minutes right yeah yeah. So I, I think it's actually a, a great example of, of using this social construct to trick us uh, and and sort of make us believe what we've just seen has now been confirmed. When, in fact, in isolation of all of that, it hasn't been confirmed at all. It really is just a trick. Yeah. And I, I feel like I don't know. I know we're not completely clear on the amount of time that passes over the course of the film. Right. Although I know. Paul had been 
missing for, I, I don't feel like it had been that long, but uh, when he's talking to his lawyer at the end, it, he's just like, I just had, didn't he say I just had lunch with him in London last week? I had dinner with him twice, or, 10 days ago. 10 days ago. So that means that it's all over a couple weeks. And if, I don't know, my impression is that if this had happened in the apartment, it wouldn't be cleared out, painted, ready to sell quite that quickly. I have a feeling it would right. still probably be a crime scene. Well, and one of the sequences we get during the chainsaw chase is uh, the the woman opens the closet door and you see bodies hanging in yeah like like meat in uh, on the coat rack. That coat rack, that's not going to handle two bodies. That's <laughs> just not. It's just not going to handle the weight. You're, you're buying the wrong coat racks, right? <laughs> Let me just tell you. <laughs> Maybe I am. Maybe I am. Well, but also, I, 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 and I don't know enough of like what's going on in this particular building that is quote the the his murder pad. We'll call yeah, it. Well, um, nobody comes out into the hallway when they hear a chainsaw. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. Like he's he's running around the place naked there, with a chainsaw running like, you know, and she's running around screaming, banging on doors, runs down the stairwell. And then the fact that he drops the chainsaw so perfectly to like kill her at the very bottom of it. I, I find all of that. It, it had to be in his mind. I just I, I felt like I mean, it was it was I believed it when it happened. But afterward, I'm like, yeah, there's no way that would have happened because somebody would have come out. Somebody would have heard something. I mean, there was just so much noise going on. Um, and again, it's just it's hard to say exactly because we just don't know. Is this a completely vacant floor? Is he the first one there? Yeah. Like we, We're just not privy to all of that. And there are breadcrumbs about that in particular, too, that I find interesting, right? That at the very end of the movie, Gene is looking through his day planner and sees this just, I mean, uh, 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 Jackson Pollock of doodles depicting just horrible, horrible things that he's done. And some of them are the things that we saw on camera. Most of them are things we saw that weren't on camera. Some of them were directly, I mean, most of them, I think, were directly from the book, right? You see the things that are doodled that are in the book that we don't see in the movie that are rough. Yeah. Um, but one of them is the chainsaw in, in yeah. her back. And now this is, he could have drawn that uh, after the event happened. And we see him doodling when he's in his, he's having lunch and during the breakup scene after that, that happened after the event. Um, and so it is possible that he doodled that on the, uh, in his day planner after the event happened. But because of the way the movie plays with time, that's uncertain. It really, that montage of horrors in his day planner really could have been just something that he was doing all along, like his fantasy sketches um, that, you know, some we see, some we don't. And those fantasy sketches, like when I see Gene flipping through that book, my impression is that this is what this is what he's seeing in his head. He's like doodling this out as he's like imagining, creating these imaginary scenario, different scenarios. He's kind of drawing it out. And so that's another thing that I'm like, I, is he just doodling it? And then we're seeing it play out in his head the way that he's imagining it. Or is he doing these drawings? After he has actually done something. Yeah. No, in my my sense, because I am on camp in his head. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> uh, right. You know, this was um, this was a way to exercise those demons for him. And the level of success at which he does it is uh, arguable. But that's that's what we're looking at on the page. The one the one scene that I feel 
as I think back through the film, all the different things that happened over the course of it, I try to think, okay, do I feel any of that stuff actually happened? The one scene that I'm like, okay, I think that this could have happened was when he has the two prostitutes over to his place and uh, for the big orgy and all of just the kind of the the demeaning nature of the portrayal of everything. But I feel like, okay, that could have happened. He might even have beat them up at the end of it and sent them on their way. Like, I feel like if there's anything, that may be the one thing that actually happened. And then when he imagines the later um, reconnecting with that one particular prostitute, um, I was like, okay, that may be all in his head now because now he's actually going to relive that scenario and play it out a different way. Um, so I don't know. Again, it's 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 fun to think about. It's interesting to try to guess like where are we in the world of of Patrick Bateman at any point in time. Yeah, that's a really I mean that's a really good point. I I see him and I think reading, you know, how Mary Heron talks about him as, you know, she sees him as quote a buffoon, right? He is the 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 uh cinematic and literary depiction of an empty suit, right? He yeah. just he's um he's got this vile thoughts in his head. He contributes nothing at work. He's it's his, you know, his um uh his father in the soon to be father in law's company right he hates his work he's um he's in uh, murders and executions mergers and acquisitions <laughs> right fun <laughs> little plays on words there but he is a non he's a non contributor apart from being accidentally in the right place at the right time and being handed privilege on a silver platter right and capable ultimately of nothing if you, and yeah. and the, so I don't even know if he is because all of this is happening in his head. He is a coward, right? He is a coward just drifting through life. And I don't even know if he'd be capable of having the the prostitutes over to his house. I think he would. I um, For me, it's it's hard to even imagine him going that far um, uh, apart from just, you know, fantasizing about it. But I guess I guess I can see it, like because the movie does such an able job of playing with that line of of what is real and and what is not. Well, and it, and it could also, and that's actually a good point, could, because the way that that scene plays out, they're all sleeping, and then the two women are kind of getting ready to go, and they're starting to. They're like, "Can we leave?" And he's just like, and that's when he's just like oh, no, no, we're not done yet, or whatever mm-hmm. he says. And then we cut to them leaving, and they're both all bloodied and beaten and yeah. stuff. It could actually be that they actually both leave. Like, they're, all it was was just a, a dirty night of sex. Yeah. And then in his head, after they leave, that's when he starts imagining, you know, what he would have liked to do and just beat the hell out of the two of them before sending them on their way. Yeah, right. I mean, that's that's kind of where... Uh, that's kind of where my head uh, is on this. Yeah. He's it, it's such an it's such an interesting way to explore this character's desire to find himself, right? To sort of find himself and get lost along the way, yeah. um, and uh, in in his just disgusting identity. Well, here's an interesting scene to think about. Does he, in fact, put his hands around um, the what's his name's throat uh, in the bathroom? Was that Lewis? Yeah, see, now this is another really great, great question in terms of where the line is, because, you know, in in the book, um, 
there is a much ex- a longer sequence here where he ends up kicking Lewis in the face over and over because Lewis won't let go of his ankle. Like he's like, he's just so in, in love with him and don't leave me kind of a thing. And it's, oh. um, and, and so here we have r- really playing with this idea of him coming to terms with maybe latent homosexuality that he is terrified of exploring and acts out in rage by putting his hands around Lewis's neck and then effectively allowing Lewis to kiss his wrists. Yeah. Did which part happened? Did did that happen? Is is this what he is, uh, you know, another one of those things he's really afraid of? Yeah, and that's what's so interesting about that particular scene, especially when you start thinking about everything that's going on. And I can't help but feel like there must have been something in his head that had him at least start acting out that he was going to throttle Lewis in the bathroom. And mm-hmm. maybe he did like put his hands around Lewis's neck. And But then that turned into that scene where Lewis is like, oh, I've always wanted you and all that sort of stuff. And Remembering then just, the brands of, of ties yeah. that he was wearing in days past. Right, exactly. And then, then that pushes... Uh, Bateman into this kind of panic place where like, oh my God, now he thinks I'm gay and just kind of like freaks out and runs out and everything. And obviously not nearly as violent in this particular version, but what an interesting way to kind of play that out where it's like, is he like in his head does, cause I, I feel like maybe he talked to a, a bum. Maybe he did have these two prostitutes over and then he gets to these points in his actions where He's doing something that fits his external role, but then he then he internalizes it and turns it into much darker places. And maybe with Lewis in the bathroom, he did actually like reach his hands up around his throat or maybe he just like started thinking about it and Lewis misinterpreted it. Who knows? But I I mean, obviously, I think something happened there because Lewis, I think we're getting reactions from Lewis that I don't know, in my sense, are reality. But I'm just, you know, it's so hard to say. Well, mine too. And and I think because of so much of this movie is about letting us experience his reaction to things he's uh, he's uh, either afraid of or needs to dominate or, or you know, his relationship with the world around him. Um, it, it feels like this is another bit of just uh, nuanced training for us as an audience uh, in who Patrick Bateman, whoever he is, ends up being. And and I really, I mean, I think it's just great. And you can see just how lost he is by his diatribes in pop culture, right? He has a couple of what I think great monologues on Phil Collins and Huey Lewis in the News and Whitney Houston, and uh, they all come sort of paired with his his preamble to murder. But in, in the book, there are whole chapters dedicated to his thoughts on Phil Collins and Genesis and his transition to solo. And I, I mean, it is a lot. But isn't this also an opportunity for this person to um, to to get lost in this distraction of uh, fandom, right, of his fascinating, like it is, he is a person who is as toxically lost in fandom about things as anyone I've ever seen. I don't know. I was torn. I'm like, does he actually think like, is he actually studying Huey Lewis in the news to such a great depth or is he pulling all of this from pages of Rolling Stone and different things like that? Or like, I, how smart is this guy? And then what I found I found so interesting was when 
he was talking to Detective Kimball, played by Willem Dafoe, who just happened to pick up a copy of Huey Lewis in the news. And he completely denies the fact that he's a fan because this detective is a fan. And he says yeah. they, they sound too black for me or something like that. Yeah. It, like it became so immediately dismissive because somebody that he viewed as as such a much lower status type of person would enjoy it. And but also not in the way that he enjoyed it. In a way, he reminded me of Glass, um, the uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character in Unbreakable specifically, where he's running the comic shop and he absolutely refuses to sell that father um, that, uh, I don't know, it was like a, a piece of art from a comic because it was just going to hang in his son's room. You know, he was so dismissive of the fact that this guy couldn't view it the same way that he did. Right, right. Because he he saw it in such a, a much stronger light and that and this detective could never appreciate it that way. So he just, he, the way that he dealt with that was just to deny knowledge of it. Yeah, right. And, you know, look on the other side. In his head, he's having a, um, you know, conversation with himself, really, and his, you know, the other two women in the second um, sort of, sex scene uh, where he's talking about Whitney Houston and she looks over at him, a woman who he already demonstrably despises as a gender uh-huh. and she dismisses his appreciation of Whitney Houston. Right. And ends up being the first to go that night. Like he, his response is another murderous killing spree. Yeah. Was she the one that he ran into in the Gosh, he was in a in a shop. It was not the same person. Okay, never mind. No, we we never uh, we never see that that woman okay. again. Gotcha. She was gone. Yeah, this was just some other woman that he knew, uh, yeah. who uh, he actually knew from his circles, who he had brought over for this. Yeah, yeah, and and that's an interesting bit because the lies almost start to come out when she gets on the phone and she says, "Here, I need you to come over. Where are we? Paul right. Allen's place. That it's uh, that he can't come out with the." the truth very loudly well and i was expecting christy I, I don't know why i mean she's she's there she knows that she's being called by a fake name he keeps saying i want you to call me paul allen mm-hmm. so that tells me he's he, you know he's telling her i'm going by a fake name i'm going to call you christy like so i guess it wouldn't come as a surprise to christy that you know his real name is patrick it's not paul whatever but you know she never says anything and i guess that's probably why she's just under the assumption everything here is you know this fiction that he's creating to go through this whole thing but it is interesting when when she does start kind of leading towards some of the actual names and the truths and stuff like that that he is you know it you know he definitely doesn't want to bring any of that up no, bubbles over. And in fact, yeah. that is sort of it leads us to the final uh, climax of the movie. And if there isn't if there is a thing that um, outs this movie as or his experience as unreal as in his head, it is the last few, the last sort of spree experience on the street that That's, starts yeah. when when he it's where when the ATM asks him to feed him, a, feed it a stray cat. And then he just begins shooting people indiscriminately. Um, And his call to his lawyer, uh, when he tells the lawyer everything, he I killed a lot of people. I just, I killed a lot of people. And, um, you know, it's, it is, um, those things, those, those things just don't 
happen without consequences if it's not in his head. Yeah, right. It's, I mean, it, it, it really, I, I was a little torn when we get to that particular place because things start happening that are so over the top. And even he's starting to recognize that they're over the top. Like he's shooting his gun and the cop cars explode, right? And and right. he looks at the gun like, what the heck is this thing? Yeah. Like it it starts like, you know, crossing the line as to like, it's so far past a point of believability in the context of the film and seemingly for him that he's just, you know, he, I don't know, it's just so big and so over the top that he's, I, I, I'm, I'm torn there whether that works as well for me when it gets to that particular place in the film. Why is that? Because I, you know, to me, it is that final signal. If you didn't get it already, you need to get it now that this guy is sick and this is a movie about his sickness. I think for me, it's the fact that suddenly it feels like, oh, this is a movie about this guy rather than this guy. Like it felt like, like I didn't see this playing out necessarily this way in his head. You know, like it just, it seemed so over the top for even for his head to take it this far. And I think that's where, that's where I struggle with it because I, I liked so much when we were in his head and we were trying to, you know, kind of navigate these waters. When it gets here, it really feels like now they're like, well, we really need to spell out that this is all just make believe in his head. You know, what's interesting about that, Andy, that I, I think what we're talking about here is the is Mary Heron's interpretation of the tense change, the person change in the book when hmm. it goes from first person to third person. Right. Oh, that's, that, that's interesting. Kind yeah. of, that's kind of the experience that I get with this, that now we're and you just said it, I think so brilliantly, maybe accidentally, that this is a movie now. <laughs> that's not usually him. the case. It's about him. Right. Yeah, like, right. That's fascinating. Yeah. Right. Right. To me, it doesn't hit me as hard. To me, it's like it's a it, it, this is the ex, this is the the ultimate experience of his pathology. Well, we certainly get back in his head for me because I, mm -hmm. I definitely feel like this particular point, it feels like now the filmmakers are going to pull their big reveal and show us, oh, all of this violence and stuff. It's actually just this mental fiction that he has playing out in his head. But then by the time we get back to the end and he's. He's now because we we go through this whole thing where, you know, the cops, the helicopters circling outside, like all of this yeah. stuff is going on. And it seems like, OK, if this is real, they're going to be busting down his door. We know we pretty much know that none of this is real. He, then we get to the next morning and everything's fine. And then he just goes about his day. And certainly there's it's, he's, it's more than just going about his day. He's kind of freaking out. He calls his lawyer. He calls Gene like he has these moments and then he goes to the club and meets with his friends and has this conversation which was a really interesting conversation about Ronald Reagan and how I loved it it's like is he a harmless old man or is he actually a hidden psychopath you and think this that's whole an thing, accident that they're using Ronald Reagan the actor president to yeah, uh, as right. an allusion to the actor uh, serial murderer right exactly which I, I loved the way that they kind of have this whole conversation revolving around that. And that's where he talks to his lawyer. And we have this whole thing about Davis. And, you know, it's like, oh, that's where you, you, you really failed because you used Bateman as the one and no one would ever believe Bateman. And I, I just find all of that so interesting, the way that all of that's playing out. And then it goes to that final voiceover where he's just like, He's this is this is where he's stuck like this. He's going to be this is his life. This is how he lives day to day with this just constant battle between his 
psychopathy and reality and ne- and just like this complete blurring of any line that's actually there. Like he's just, it's going to be this way. And I, I found that to be a really interesting thing. That does bring us fully back into his first person storytelling. Yes, it does. Yeah, because the lesson here is that his psychopathology is a yo-yo. Right. Yeah. You yeah. may have this these these fleeting glimpses of of reality in between experiences of complete delusion. Yeah. Just I mean, it's it's really stunning the way the, the film is put together and deals with all of this stuff. And and yeah, all those bits of the pop culture of the um, just kind of like the the one upsmanship that these people all have with their business cards and their suits and their their flats and their women and everything. Um, it just I it, I just found it to be such a you know an insightful look at the kind of this greed. I mean, the, going back to Wall Street, greed is good, and that whole idea that that film really kind of propelled and and was really kind of pushing, especially with that Wall Street. Uh, 80s generation of really wanting to just always get more and more and more. And I mean, even the way that the women act, like the way Reese Witherspoon's character, who is his quote fiance, acts like when when they're together about like, are you with another of your floozies that you picked up or whatever? Like she's she clearly knows how awful he is. And even when he's trying to break up, like just doesn't view any of that as reality because she's so convinced herself of this reality of them being together. And I don't know, I just, I find the whole thing just so smartly put together and horrifying. And that's what's so great about this film is it is just, it is truly a horror film, unlike other horror films though, because it's just, it's such a, you know, this, this, these rich, 1% 1% type of people on Wall Street that we're actually seeing it all um, involved in the story. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I don't know, it's a, it's a strong film. Yeah, it's, it's gory. It is a, it's, it's a social thriller as much as it's a horror film. Uh, I, I kind of look at a movie like Get Out and I see it as sort of a, like we're dealing with the same sorts of, of, um, or it's a film dealing with the same sorts of like cultural things and inequality and inadequacy and, um, and, you know, doing it in the guise of a, you know, horror thriller, less gory. But uh, I, I sort of see Mary Heron's approach as as sort of Jordan Peele as an antecedent. Um, really great. Really great. You want to talk about getting it made? Well, we talked a little bit about it. Um, but, yeah, it was one of those things where, I mean, it, you know, I mentioned a little bit of Pressman and Oliver Stone and all that. But, I mean, it's certainly there were certainly a lot of other elements at play in the process of getting this film made because with DiCaprio involved, my understanding is that when Heron and Bale came on board this project, because um, she came on fairly early replacing David Cronenberg and then. Um, we're working on the script with Guinevere Turner. And then, um, she kind of had just this, just basically a handshake deal with Christian Bale because she felt that he was right for the role. That's when it was still going through development and trying to figure things out. And Lionsgate, when they picked up the rights from Pressman to, to do the film, they didn't like Bale. They didn't think he was famous enough, which is so funny to think now. It's even funny to think then. It's like, you know, this is Christian Bale. He'd been a child star and had certainly been popular. But they wanted Edward Norton or Leonardo DiCaprio. 
And uh, Mary Heron, like, refused to even talk to DiCaprio because she said that he's too boyish and his reputation as a teen idol from Romeo and Juliet and Titanic is going to distract from the actual tone of the film. And so um, they had a production budget of $40 million initially for the film because DiCaprio wanted $21 million <laughs> to, for, for yeah. his paycheck for this. And so, uh, you know, he, he was on board for a little bit with Oliver Stone. They also were looking at Danny Boyle and Martin Scorsese to come on board as other directors for this. And that's when uh, finally DiCaprio ended up going to do The Beach. That's when they brought uh, Mary Heron back on, and um, that's when um, they they still weren't convinced of bail, and they were actually making an offer to Ewan McGregor. Bail was just so committed to the film and to Mary Heron that he 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 actually reached out to Ewan McGregor and urged him not to um, take the part. And so finally, that's a power move, right? Yeah, like, geez, right. I know. So finally, they they did agree. They said the budget can't exceed ten million. So that's a quarter of the budget they were going to give to it when DiCaprio was on board. And uh, but they, you know, that that's eventually how they got it going. Now, what I think is interesting, a couple points about Christian Bale and his performance. He said that, or I think Mary Heron said this about him that he struggled with the role until he saw an interview with Tom Cruise, where he said that he was struck by Cruise's energy and his quote intense friendliness with nothing behind the eyes <laughs> that is my very favorite part of the research coming out of this experience on that's this so show funny about i actually this thought your favorite part would be this that bale he said that he also used nicholas cage's performance in vampire's kiss as inspiration <laughs> for the role <laughs> that's you're the one you're the one who loves that so much <laughs> i i love it because it, it, there's a there's a, a history between the two of us in that film but um yes Right. Absolutely right. love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> no, I just think all of that is so interesting. So, uh, yeah. I do, too. Yeah. I, uh, interesting parallel. So this movie comes out in uh, April of 2000. Uh, and, and it's one of my favorite favorite movies. I love this movie. And it's, it's weird. Another one of my very, very favorite movies, Andy, uh, came out in 1999. A book adaptation a controversial book adaptation by a controversial author, Chuck Palahniuk. Uh Hard book to read. It's Fight Club. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Another unreliable narrator. Unreliable narrator existing, I I think, more concretely in headspace uh, than than this one. Uh, Leaves a lot more for discussion. Um, What does this say about me that I love these movies so much. <laughs> uh, that's funny. You know, I don't I don't know if it's saying anything horrifying about you or anything. Um at least I don't want to think so. <laughs> but I think there is something to be said for this really fascinating type of storytelling that takes you inside a character's head and you're just never quite sure what's going on. I I think it makes for exciting fiction to read or watch because it allows it's, it's much more of a, um, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a more challenging way to, to jump into a story because everything that's happening, you have to think about in multiple ways, especially on reviewing when you're going to go back and, and rewatch it and look at it again and go, Oh, okay. Now I'm seeing these signals. I'm seeing these points here where I can start seeing these splits and the divergences and stuff. And I think that's what I think is really interesting about the way that that's working. 
Me too. I, I, I do too. I, I love the experience of, of uncovery that comes with realizing, um, you know, what, who you are inside, like what your inner voices are telling you about your own identity. And I think these, these two movies really celebrate that in a, in a way that I think is just so powerful. Uh, hell of a cast too. First, obviously, Christian Bale uh, goes on to play Batman and Jared Leto as the Joker. Come on, man. <laughs> and Willem Dafoe as the Green Dafoe Goblin. As the Green Goblin, right? <laughs> Come on. And Josh uh, Lucas, he was in Hulk. <laughs> he was in Hulk. Josh Lucas. Oh, Josh Lucas, where have you been? Um, yeah, it's a it's a great cast. Josh Lucas, Samantha Mathis, uh, we, we get, uh, uh, who's wonderful. Matt Ross, Bill Sage, Chloe Sevigny. Um, Chloe Sevigny is great in this movie. Talk about sort of a playing counter to all the other women in this movie. I think she's just this wonderful. Is, this may be the most likable role for Chloe Sevigny that, uh, well, she's, she, I don't know. She's one of those actresses that I think likes to play challenging roles. Yes. I think that's just kind of, but she was there was so much of her in the 90s in like these indie sorts of films this is one of those ones where i was like she's she's basically just a good person working for that 80s dick boss <laughs> and she's yeah. stuck in that and i really liked her she was very sweet and it was very heartbreaking to watch her discover that notebook of his with kind of all of his horrors in it yeah yeah rough very i thought dark, she was yeah. She was just yeah. uh, wonderful. Uh, fun, actually, I wanted to just make a note to see Matt Ross in this thing because you, I had forgotten Matt Ross was in it and realized that I've just r really fallen for him and his character in um, Silicon Valley. Yeah. Right. I love him in that. day. He's a, just a fantastic character in that um, and uh, wonderful character face. Certainly another character face. I mean, he was in The Last Days of Disco uh, with Stillman's film a few years earlier with Chloe mm -hmm. Sevigny. Uh, he's definitely kind of that an indie sort of actor, but pops into in in these bit parts in bigger films like The Aviator, Good Night and Good Luck. Um, it is kind of fun to just see him doing stuff. He certainly, I think, uh, has really moved more into TV work uh, lately. I think that's more mm -hmm. where he's he's keeping busy uh, as of late. Uh, Kara Seymour, Justin Theroux uh, as, as Bryce. Justin Theroux. Uh, you know, we were talking about all those other people popping up in, in these uh, different Marvel movies and superhero movies. Justin Theroux, they're talking about right now over on the Iron Movie uh, or the Marvel Movie Minute, Iron Man 2, he actually wrote. So he's he's one of those actors who's also crossed the line into um, writing and directing. Uh, certainly a lot of acting that he's done. And we saw him uh, just last time and I shot Andy Warhol. So certainly somebody in kind of uh, Mary Heron's camp, her pool of actors that she's using. But then looking at what he's doing as a writer, I think that that's really interesting that he's made that that shift because stuff like Tropic Thunder, Iron Man 2, Rock of Ages. I, I think it's interesting that he's um, been able to do it, uh, kind of work successfully on both sides of the line. Absolutely. Man, his his uh, uh, credits. I I had, don't think I had looked at the list of his credits and the weird Venn diagram that he has created for himself between all of his his uh, stuff. He's yeah. everywhere. He's just everywhere. Yeah, he totally is. Whether it's something like Mulholland. I mean, this is a guy who the same year he was in Mulholland Drive, David Lynch's film. Yes. He was also in Zoolander. <laughs> Right. So, 
he really is like happy to work in all types of films. And I find that exciting. I think that's really fun to see as somebody, uh, you know, looking at like John C. Riley, how, you know, he's in, uh, I, I just always go back with him yeah. to that Oscar song that he did where he's like, he was in both Talladega and Boogie Nights. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Genevieve Turner uh, is actually in the movie uh, as Elizabeth uh, and Reese Witherspoon um, has uh, it's delightful. And you said Genevieve Turner. It's Guinevere Turner. I said Genevieve. That's right, Andy, because uh, often she does go by that. <laughs> we'll, we'll actually talk about her more next time on Notorious Betty Page next week. Yes. Because she also right. co-wrote that one. Uh, and uh, that's that's it. That's the cast. That's great cast. Great faces. They've all gone on to some crazy things. I forgot so many of these people were in this particular film. <laughs> right. Uh, it's one of those films that uh, I always remembered Christian Bale and Jared Leto, mostly because of the Huey Lewis and the News sequence, which, you know, I just have to jump back to Christian Bale and his performance. That sequence alone, the way that he like moves his body when he's doing his little dance moves and stuff, like there is something extra special going on in that scene because Christian Bale is taking <laughs> Patrick Bateman up a notch to just crazy insane. And it's just that it has to be one of my favorite scenes in film watching Christian Bale in his raincoat as he's like doing his little Huey, Huey Lewis dance moves there in front yeah. of his stereo. It's just, oh, just so good. Is so that good. a raincoat? It is. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah. Uh, so good. Um, Let's see, Andre uh, Sekula behind the camera. This, um, you know, we, we're not returning to uh, her previous cinematographer, Ellen Kuras, who she used for I Shot Andy Warhol. This definitely has a, a uh, as far as the cinematography goes, I think when you're doing something like this, you need to create a very clean, top-notch, like really crisp world. And I think it works really well. And I think... I don't know. I think Ellen Curris could have done it just fine, but she goes to Quentin Tarantino's first cinematographer that he used for Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and even Four Rooms. And and we're jumping into this with Andre here. And, you know, I think that uh, it it captures, like, everything looks really high end. Like, they, they capture the look of this world between the production design and the cinematography. I think that it, it looks great. I do, too. And the fact that, you know, uh, Sekula goes on to, uh, you know, he's worked with Mamet. He worked with he's worked with a lot of people, but he does go on to make Cube 2 Hypercube, <laughs> which he wrote or he directed as well, uh, which I think is uh, important to note. I should have known that that would be the 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 pull that you would grab for this one. Yes. Yes, you should have. You should have known that. Uh, all right. And music, uh, the the music sort of makes the thing uh it is uh, full of all sorts of great the the soundtrack i should say kind of makes the thing the soundtrack is uh is just a fantastic uh walk down memory lane for the from you know 80s hits um and because it's so deeply ingrained into the um you know the the narrative itself uh the rest of the music is done by john kale uh what do you think of the score 
it's another of those films where I think in context of the story being told, I thought John Cale's music worked well. In fact, the time that I really noticed it was during the opening credits where you have this kind of creepy music as you're seeing this crisp white with blood drops and stuff like that. And then slowly both the images and music transition to this kind of uh, what feels like, you know, a four piece uh, kind of, orchestra type of music playing in some fancy restaurant because all of a sudden the red and white is transitioning to now oh is that a sauce now oh i think it is it's like a some sort of a raspberry sauce oh yep and now there's a raspberry and all of a sudden now we're looking at a really fancy dinner plate with a really elaborate nice you know nicely plated meal and the music transitioned really nicely with that so i liked the way that 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 all played out other than that, I know the music worked in context of the film, but I am so stuck on the songs that yeah. I had a hard time remembering a whole lot of the specific um, uh, score pieces. Uh, I just remember feeling it fit. Yeah, I think the beginning and the end of uh, of the movie, the the score is wonderful, and and Kale is is known for a lot of his like great avant garde, his drone music, and like the those uh, those kinds of sort of musical themes are big for him, and I think it just plays really well in this movie. Um, the opening credits, I love the opening credits. Right, it's the close ups and the weird shots of of food being prepared, super close up. Um, and I, do you? have any sort of sense memory of the that sort of sequence being shot before this movie uh you know i, I it's funny that you say that because i feel like i likely have but i'm also like uh oh, what was that tv show with the um, dexter dexter because I, it was I, dexter dexter i also feel like there was a stephen king book that used uh for its cover it had something some sort of image like that. But I, again, I can't remember exactly if it came out before this or not. I, I can't either. The TV show, uh, Dexter, the TV show d- does it very, very well, making breakfast, frying ham, eggs, that kind of a thing. And uh, it, it's a lovely little trick. Uh, that show ran from 2006 to 2013. Um, and the first book, Darkly Dreaming Dexter, 2004, 2000. So it did come out after. I just I, I worried for a second there, like that Dexter, the character Dexter Morgan came out well before all of oh, this okay. and was just adapted after it got excited. But it, it seems like this was um, likely some inspiration therein. Yeah. And the Stephen King book, I was it's, it's one of his collections. It's called Everything's Eventual. And that came out 2002. The, okay. the cover of which was a very white cover um it looked it was like a you see like a white tablecloth a white plate there's a glass of water on it and there's a blood drop in the water so it was a very white with this little streak of red in it so again something else that may have pulled from this particular title sequence well it is a great title sequence and i want to applaud its originality if it indeed is original yeah i want to jump back to the music real quick sure just a couple notes as far as the music goes. Um, obviously, there are a lot of songs featured in it, including Huey Lewis. Um, when it came time to actually releasing the album, they actually pulled the album because they had to re- re-release it because the album, they had Hip to Be Square on it. And then um, Huey Lewis's um, people said that they couldn't use it and the the quote was as a result of the violent nature of the film huey lewis's management decided not to give the soundtrack clearance 
And wow. of course, Whitney Houston, she said that it she they could not use her actual song. That's why we have the orchestral easy listening version of that song instead, which, uh, you know, it, it was a little bit of a disappointment that we didn't hear that song in the film, but I get it when it comes to these sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I, I, I will say, and this is just a tidbit that I want to add regarding Huey Lewis, the fact that, um, that Huey Lewis and Weird Al Yankovic actually recreated the scene um, with uh, Huey Lewis in the Bateman role, Weird Al Yankovic in the Paul Allen role. And in the scene, <laughs> Huey Lewis is talking about the the artistic merits of the film, <laughs> shows the scene. And in the end, Huey Lewis kills Yankovic saying, try parroting one of my songs now, you stupid bastard. <laughs> I haven't seen that. I can't believe I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's a funnier die sketch. So, oh my gosh, I love it. I love yeah. it. Phil Collins too was, uh, you know, there's a there's a lot about Phil Collins in the book, and um, uh, he had refused to read the book. And when the movie came out, he he did finally see it and say it, that he thought it was quote funny. <laughs> Phil Collins. Brett Easton Ellis was not a huge fan initially. He seemed pretty uh, negative about the movie, even though he licensed it. But he said he didn't think it needed to be turned into a movie. He said the medium of film demands answers. But later, he actually was on the Mark Maron podcast, and he said he's it's, he's more mixed than negative. And what he said was he didn't know if Bateman was really describing events that happened or if he was lying or hallucinating. And he did appreciate the film, clarify the humor, um, because that was one of the things in the novel. The violence was just in, uh, mistaken for a blatant misogyny, but it wasn't the satire that he intended. And he said, of course, it gave his novel a second life. So I think in the end, he still was, he was like mediocre. But he said the movie was okay, the movie was fine. I just didn't think it needed to be made. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that. Um, but, and I, I think in this case, you know, having one of those experiences where I've had the experience of both, they're different properties, you know, yeah. and even as much as the movie pulls from the book, um, it, it is a different property and it highlights different things and it brings up different questions. And um, that makes it uh, that makes them both uh, satisfying in their own way. Yeah, I'm right, not going right. to call them fun. Um <laughs> We got sequels and remakes. Oh, do we? Yeah, it's one of those uh, movies. And, you know, I wonder what everybody involved thinks of the fact that there was a sequel made, director video called American Psycho 2, uh, with Mila Kunis in it. Mila uh, Kunis. Yeah, the, there's really no connection to it other than the fact that um, the connection is that there's the uh, the death of Bateman. Mm-hmm. In in it, he's in a mask. Uh, yeah, he's wearing a mask, and it's it's shown in a a flashback. Um, I don't know. I it, it was supposed to be pretty terrible. Nobody it was pretty really terrible. wanted it. Oh, yeah, it was even, terrible. Oh, you've seen it. Even Mila oh, yeah. Kunis, uh, you know, didn't want it. She she actually said, "Please, somebody stop this. Write a petition." When I did the second one, I didn't know it'd be American Psycho two. It was supposed to be a different project, and it was re-edited. But ooh, I don't know. Bad. Yeah. No. This is one of those that I feel like. Mm. I, I feel like that's the most interesting thing about it is that she did not know that it was ultimately an American Psycho project when she made the movie. Yeah. I want to know how it was sold to her. Obviously, it's one of those things where there was a, a there likely, you know, rights changed hands during the production and they thought it might be a way to get more people to see it. That's my hunch. But um, I'd, I'd be really curious to see what that original property was because it's not an American Psycho movie. 
No, other than, I, I mean, I don't know. Is she, other than she's basically a killer? Is that really? And there's the no idea? satire to it, right? There's yeah. no satire to it at all. They pretty much so. just said, okay, we're going to, we're going to turn this into basically a horror slasher. And yeah. that's all it was, really. right? Yeah. Right. It was actually adapted from a script titled The Girl Who Wouldn't Die. So there you go. Hmm. That, then obviously they, yeah, they, uh, turned it from there. There also was, an announcement at one point that Lionsgate was developing with FX, a TV series of this. It was going to be uh, the American Psycho TV series. It was going to be a sequel to the film set in the present. Patrick Bateman would be in his 50s grooming an apprentice to be just like him. Um, the show, they were still developing it for a while. Uh, nobody knows at this point. It's not been spoken of. We're assuming at this point it's either canceled or in development hell, but that would be an odd property. I, I don't know what <laughs> yeah. to make of that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, maybe yeah. they're trying. Yeah, I, I don't want to speculate, but I don't know that it's something that I would tune in for. Yeah, right, right. How to do the uh, uh, award season? Well, it, it, it's a dark, dark film. Dark films like this oftentimes not don't get recognized by places perhaps they should be i.e. the Oscars, things like that. This is a film I think very easily could have been an, uh, an Oscar-nominated film. I just think that darkness takes it to places where it's not getting those types of recognition. Um, in, in the same year as, as Requiem for a Dream, which is another very dark film, a different type of film, but also didn't necessarily get the nominations that maybe it should have. Still, this film had eight wins, 13 other nominations. Christian Bale was recognized a number of times, uh, screenplay, uh, cinematography, but it also it was the type of awards like the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards. And those were some of the things that it was getting. Like, it got Best Wide Release Film and Best Actor at the Chainsaw Awards. Chloe Sevigny was nominated for Best Supporting Actress there, but uh, she lost to Parker Posey. In Scream 3, of all things, the score was nominated. John Cale's score was nominated, but lost to Howard Shore for The Cell. Best Screenplay was nominated, but lost to Shadow of the Vampire. And so it was getting some of these types of awards. Um, but yeah, it's it's it wasn't as big. A lot of smaller places. Uh, the National Board of Review actually gave it a special recognition award for its excellence in filmmaking. But largely it's places like the Amer Awards Circuit Community Awards or Camera Image or Clotrudis Awards. You know, it's it's not getting recognized in the bigger circles. I do have a question for you, though. Looking back to the people nominated for Best Actor at the Oscars this particular year, I mentioned Requiem for a Dream, so perhaps Jared Leto could be thrown into the mix. Perhaps mm -hmm. Christian Bale could be thrown into the mix. Here are the other nominees for Best Actor in 2000. Russell Crowe from Gladiator, who won. Ed Harris from Pollock, which I still haven't seen. Jeffrey Rush from Quills. Javier Bardem from Before Night Falls, which I also haven't seen. And Tom Hanks from Castaway. Those were the five that were nominated. It's really hard for me to say because I haven't seen so many of those, weirdly. I feel like there are so many that have been on my list that I, I missed. Jeffrey Rush is playing um, uh, the Marquis de Sade in Quills. So yeah. it's, it's definitely a scenery-chewing type of role. He's very big, and it's, it's just kind of obviously he's dark and, and comedic and over the top, which very much fits with this sort of thing. Tom Hanks and Castaway. I love Castaway. I love Tom Hanks. You know that. I would cut mm -hmm. him out and I would put Jared Leto in or I, I think Christian Bale, absolutely, probably. Um, 
and, and I, again, I haven't seen it Harris or Javier Bardem in their two films, um, but even Russell Crowe Crow in Gladiator. I mean, I love that film, too. But I'm like, I mean, we're looking at some of the best performances from the year. And I think Christian Bale is just so strong in this role. It's just uh, it's a shame that uh, it took so many more years before he uh, would uh, win his Oscar. Right. Especially in terms of just how far they're asking an actor to go. Yeah. Right. In, in terms of their performance. I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, added to the box office. Well, for Heron's second film, she had a budget of $8 million to work with. Remember, I said they had to keep it under 10 which they did, which is $11.9 million in today's dollars. And honestly, she did an incredible job with that amount of money. I mean, think about all of the richness that we're seeing throughout the film. I mean, we if you're watching the credits of this, there's definitely big special thanks to the company cutting all of the suits for the film and all of the special thanks for the different companies that are providing all the, the different types of vehicles and ties and just, you know, watches and business cards and everything else that, that we're seeing to make it feel like there's a lot of money in here. Uh, this movie opened April 14th, 2000, opposite 28 Days, Keeping the Faith, Where the Money Is, and the limited release of East is East. This film opened in spot six, then it fell out of the top 10 by week three, unfortunately, never quite finding its audience. It ended up earning $15 million domestically and $19.2 million internationally for a total gross of $51 million in today's dollars. That gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of 387.5 thousand. Yeah, certainly a decent place to land for Heron, Heron, Bale and company. But I tell you, even if they had done this with Leonardo DiCaprio, if they were doing this on a $40 million budget, just because of the darkness of the story, I still think it would have lost money. I think this was the way to go. Yeah, I think so too. I think this was the smart way to do it. Uh, it tells a good, tight story. Gives a lot of things to think about uh, with some really entertaining performances. And, and yeah. I think uh, added to it, the the pop culture satire stuff is so thick. And I, I want to bring this up because I know it will be an issue to reckon with. Uh, how does this film and what it is saying, because this has already come up in the YouTube live stream. Uh, how does this hit you next to the Joker or I'm sorry, Joker? Thinking of this compared with Joker, I it's a. It's a tricky thing because I feel like in Joker, what we're seeing in that film portrayed is mental illness that goes unchecked that leads to this, um, this kind of this formation of this particular character. I mean, you could argue that there's certainly a mental illness going on here. I just feel like there's something different with the portrayal here. Gosh, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that comparison. I, I think this movie has more to say. It is more uh, layered than Joker. And um, and I and certainly I think in all of its violence and grotesquerie, it actually is more nuanced than than Joker. Um, there is something about sort of living in his head the way we do in this movie um, that that makes it uh, more compelling than what we got of Joker. But I think the thing that mostly I stand against with Joker is that it would have been a better movie if it wasn't Joker. I think Joker is the American Psycho 2 of the DC universe. And that I find most frustrating about that movie. Uh, and so um, anyway, I, I, I like this better. Yeah, I, I, I think um, I like this one better too. Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, and I'm trying to remember 
all of the details of that particular film, he, gosh, my recollection of it, we're not seeing that much that's playing in his head, except for like his interactions with the woman who lives in his floor. Zazie Beats character, right? Yeah. Like that, that there's a lot of that, that false, you know, unreliable narrator, the way we're seeing those scenes play out between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, obviously we see his fantasies like being on the TV show and being, you know, recognized for how funny he is and all that sort of stuff. But I don't feel like that's played as much like unreliable narrator, like we really are buying into it. Like we're, I, my impression was we're seeing that more as just kind of his fantastical yeah. view. And what I think that this film is doing well is it's, it's taking this, this guy who's this representation of all of the greed is good. American Wall Street type of story and just basically taking away any morals, any values and leaving him unchecked as just like this rage monster. And I think that that is saying a lot more about a particular like I think it's a lot more of a satire on that type of greed is good American and that that American viewpoint Whereas I think Joker, they were trying to do it in a way where I just felt like it, it, they were trying to make it seem like a lot of it came from this mental illness that he had. And it just seemed a little less savory, which is yeah. weird to say about this one, which I'm not calling I, this film savory, but you know what I mean? Well, I, I do. And I think maybe it's just that I'm I am such a natural critic of the sort of 80s capitalism gestalt of greed is good that, you know, give me this. Yeah, ten times to, before I'm, I really want to watch Joker again. But I'm, I, I think it is worth watching Joker again. I've only seen it the one time. I didn't care for it, uh, but I feel like in light of watching this movie, I need to probably put that one on again and just just see how it hits. Yeah. Well, I certainly um, owe it another watch. I, I yeah. can't remember a lot of those finer uh, yeah. details of yeah. the story. Uh, all right, let's take it to the mat. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this fair show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flickchart, it should take you straight to this movie right in the flickchart database where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. All right. First up, American Psycho or The Birdcage? American Psycho. American Psycho. Next up, American Psycho or Platoon? American Psycho. American Psycho. American Psycho or Creed? Uh... I think uh, American Psycho. Yeah, this is a tough one. I I, I actually really have to search with... Flickchart and see if I'm going to make myself a hypocrite. I'm going to say Creed, but I I really could go either way. But I, oh, this, I'm going to make like myself a... a hypocrite. No, it's it's going to be Creed. It's going to be Creed. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to say Creed. American Psycho or The Shining? Hmm. Controversial choice. You're you're The Shining. Yeah. Um. Man, talk talk about some interesting, yeah, thematic similarities. Right, I right. think I'm I think I'm American Psycho on this. Let's do All it. Right. Let's do it. One, one, two, two three, three. Scissors, scissors. paper. All right. The Shining takes it. Yeah. American Psycho or My Neighbor Totoro. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> since Totoro was such a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> it's just like these are those pairings that yeah. just like when you're on flick chart and you're doing this it's like God, really i i have to i gotta give it to totoro <laughs> i do too god uh, american psycho or Latrue. oh wow that's a good um a good match i think it's going to be american psycho 
Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll give it to American Psycho. That's a tough one, though. American Psycho or The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Oh. American Psycho for me. I am going to say Priscilla. How hard? I think we should take it to the mat. All right. Let's do it. All right. Here we go. One. One. Two. two three. three rock. Paper. There we go. American Psycho takes it. American Psycho or Creed 2? Um, American Psycho. I'm going to say Creed 2. Okay. I really liked those Creed well, movies. Well, okay. I, again, am I a hypocrite? I don't know. <laughs> uh, this is why I don't bother checking, because I'm probably a hypocrite on half of my votes here. But that's the nature of flick chart. It's like well, things constantly are changing in my brain. I'm, I'm sticking with it. Okay, I'm sticking then, with it. Then we're going to have to take it to the mat. All right. One. One. Two. Two. Three. Three. Scissors. 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 <laughs> All, right, All I can think is what would Bateman pick? <laughs> he would pick an axe. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, American Psycho or Zero Dark Thirty? Hmm. Um, I'm going to say Zero Dark Thirty. Okay, me too. Okay, me too. <laughs> well, that lands American Psycho in spot 114 on our chart. Once 114 out of 503. That's a 77%. That's not bad. Not uh, too bad. It's, it's not, not too bad. It's not as high as mine was. How did it do on your list? It certainly ended up higher on mine. It was 779 out of 4601, which was an 80-something percent. 80-something percent. That's I didn't, still I didn't write not down what percent high it was. Yeah. It's not yeah. high enough, Andy. Uh, yeah. It ended at 107 out of 1496 on my list, which is a 93%. If I'm to go by the algorithm at flickchart.com slash the next reel, uh, I mean letterbox, letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a uh, four and a half star movie uh, over there. And it was until I rewatched it. I went ahead. I got nothing. I got no reasons not to make it a five star. So it's a five star and a heart for me. I, I think this is, it's one of my uh, favorites. This is a film that it, what's interesting is even with the kind of the, the way that that third act starts unfolding where you're not sure where you are in Patrick's mind, but you're clearly getting a sense that all of this is not real the way that he's dealing with the cops and everyone else. And he's just shooting everybody. I guess I could call those quibbles, but the way that everything plays out that constantly makes me think about what's happening in this film. Um, I, I just, I can't, I can't uh, give it anything but a five star because I think that it's so well crafted and it's so incredibly performed that I just, I, I feel like this is like a perfect version of this particular story. I mean, I, I just, I, I am, just mesmerized and it's, it's kind of horrifying to be as mesmerized as I was in such a dark film but there's just so much comedy and the satire is rich I just I mean I have a great time so absolutely five stars in heart for me oh I'm so glad to hear that I was yeah. worried this was going to be one that the quibbles outweighed the stars nope not one of those nice ones. <laughs> nice work uh, so glad we have this one in the catalog, Andy. It's about time, especially because for the longest time I was I was teaching a uh, mass media and popular culture class at the university here, and and uh, I taught it for many years. And this, you know, the the final uh, essay was um, a an intertextual analysis of of the film uh, of many films they could choose from, and this was always kind of the top one. And for years, I thought I need to go back into my syllabus and make sure that I include our show on this film as one of their possible references. 
we've never done a show on this film. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why for years I really thought that we'd already talked about it. And so um, glad to finally be able to put that little bit of Mandela effect to sleep. Right. Right. Maybe it was your future self. That's right. Thinking about that. Possible. Where do we go from here? (laughs) We are going to be closing out our Mary Heron series with her third film from 2005. It is the notorious Betty Page. I haven't watched this yet. I haven't either, but it's another biopic for her. So it'll be interesting to see what she does with that one. Yeah. Very interested. I wonder if there's a, I wonder if there's a chainsaw scene. (laughs) When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. A lot of people think this movie's boring, Andy. Yeah, that seems to be quite common in people's various reviews. Yeah, I don't, I mean, there's not, I, I went south, because, you know, five star, got to go yeah. to the half stars. Okay. And uh, there, I, I think there's just, there's not a lot of substance at the bottom of the barrel this this time around, just boring. And there are a lot of finger pointing, if you like this movie, uh, something is wrong with you posts, a lot of that. So it's possible there's something wrong with us. <laughs> that's possible by, guilt by association uh, i have a half star uh that comes to us that's uh, <laughs> from ac lambert the scene where he just sweats and cries at this insinuation that he's gay is possibly the funniest effing thing <laughs> and if you're looking for comedy that might be a piece yeah i i think that speaks to so much of uh, exactly what we're enjoying with yes. this film yes thankfully i can relate to that Yes. Well, I have a half star uh, by Jay Hincio, who says, worst film ever. And I've even watched Suicide Squad. (laughs) Excellent association. Uh, (sighs) Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022... We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>